there can be fears of what it means that we're different. And so it's so natural to have that thought. If you believe there's something about you that's different to wonder, can yeah. this work for me? And can I still hit the goals that I'm aspiring to? They come to me and they're grasping at straws. Is this neurodivergent? Is this autism? And I help people come to that realization that maybe there's some neurodivergence there, but a lot of yeah. times it's not. Neurodivergence is not toxic. It's not destructive. We know that 50% of our well-being, our thermostat of where we're going to land in terms of our overall happiness and fulfillment in life is genetic. Only 10% is circumstantial. And then that other 40% is based on what we're choosing to do. A lot of people, when they're afraid of that neurodivergent label, they're right. afraid of being pigeonholed and locked in. I think it's so important for everybody to hear your message there that you've got a lot of influence. I find that there are two very small words that are really useful in helping us create that plan. Okay. And the first okay. word is yet. And the second word is... This is season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast, which is for adults in all kinds of neurodiverse relationships, not just romantic partnerships. I'm your host, Jody Carlton, and I've spent close to two decades growing in my understanding of how our different brains influence the way we understand and relate to each other. Through the years, I've helped several thousand people understand themselves and their loved ones. This podcast is a place where I come together with others to talk about their journeys. I've got a great lineup of guests talking about things like masking, traits of neurodivergent folks, traits of neurotypical folks, what kind of things cause difficulties in our neurodiverse relationships, but also some of the wonderful things about our neurodiverse relationships. Also, this season is a video cast where you can enjoy watching on YouTube or you can listen to us on the podcast like you have before. If you're really enjoying this podcast and if you've gotten something out of it, please leave us a review because reviews really matter. And we want to get this out there to as many people as possible so they can benefit from it just like you. If you're watching on YouTube, be sure to subscribe so you'll get notifications of upcoming podcasts and other videos that I post there as well. Welcome. What will we talk about today? My guest today is Christy Ellis. Christy is neurodivergent herself. She's a wife, a friend, and a daughter, and she's killing it in the business sector. She's created five businesses, and one of those is Phoenix Story Coaching, where she provides science-grounded coaching for individuals and businesses. They figure out repetitive thought and behavior patterns that aren't working for people, so she works with her clients to build new patterns and achieve goals. Christy's certified in positive psychology, behavior change, mindfulness-based stress reduction and coaching. And we had a great conversation that you're going to want to hear that's about neurodivergence and trauma and labels and positive mindsets and so much more. We do have a, a few things in common, probably from a different lens. I don't have children. I don't have an autistic child. However, I was the chief operating officer of an autism nonprofit that mm. was doing some really remarkable work mm -hmm. uh, for several years. So yeah. I have a familiarity, even though that's not how I'm neurodivergent you know, myself. I don't have a diagnosis because I just seem to have lots of bits. Mm -hmm. and I don't easily fall into one category. Many people don't have a formal diagnosis. And I actually don't even recommend it for adults 
most of the time yeah. because it's honestly very hard to find a provider who knows how to assess and identify Absolutely. neurodivergence in adults. Yes. And, yeah. So we have plenty to talk about. I've got a kid on the spectrum. My best friend is neurodivergent. I have several family members who are. And my son, actually, he is not autistic neurodivergent, but he has sensory processing and auditory yeah, processing. Yeah, hi, that's and, me. I have that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I'm one of the only neurotypicals in the whole bunch, really. <laughs> what I do is about neurodiverse relationships. A lot of that focus is on the romantic, the domestic partnership, but really all of our relationships in our lives, if we're mixed neurotypes, ah. applicable. Absolutely. Different brain differences, just the way we're processing information, language, sensory yeah. stuff. And for myself in my practice, I do not niche into the neurodivergent community. For me, it's been really interesting. I think my perspective as a neurodivergent person, as someone who has worked with that community for a lot of years, naturally has been inclusive and relevant and has hit marks with that community. Because what I noticed, like how I started speaking to this community purposefully was because I was posting things on TikTok and I was discovering that it was neurodivergence who were really like loving. They were going, oh my gosh, I hadn't thought about that in this way. That's so useful. Now I understand or now I have a tactic mm -hmm. that I can utilize. So it wasn't purposeful. It was just where I found, I guess, some synchronicity of thought and helpfulness. I have a similar story, but from a different angle. Like you, you mentioned Lynn's a minute ago. Background is almost two decades of experience as a therapist. My original specialty with traumatic brain injury and acquired brain injury, cognitive rehab. What's interesting is a neurodivergent brain is not an injured brain, but it's still a different yeah. brain. And so I worked with people who had different brains for a different reason. That was my background. And then I had this really child. Interesting. Yeah, so I had this child then who, she's just turned 20, which is hard for me to comprehend. <laughs> I didn't really intend to ever specialize in neurodivergence or autism. Never planned on it. And as a matter of fact, had a pretty big war with myself over it <laughs> at one yeah. point because I'm living it with my family. Um, I talk about this pretty regularly. I've realized after my divorce that their dad is neurodivergent, that just that umbrella of what neurodivergence actually is. Yeah. There's more of us, quite frankly, because There's it so encompasses many. everything that's not considered typical. typical. So it's a pretty wide description. Yeah, it is. So our understanding of it in the last five, 10 years, but yeah. just even the last five years has changed tremendously. Absolutely. The more I learn about it, from the work that I do and from the clients that I meet, just so many things have made sense for me. People ask me all the time, can neurodivergent relationships work? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> but it's, it's an understandable work. fear, right? When we believe that we're different, there's a feeling of isolation. There can be fears of what it means that we're different. And so it's so natural, whether you're typical or yeah. divergent, to have that thought. If you believe there's something about you that's different to wonder can yeah. this work for me? And can I still hit the goals that I'm aspiring to? Yet there's such a stereotyped understanding of what neurodivergence means. And one of the things that I help people do to really figure out or to really determine what they're in, it, so many people 
are in toxic relationships, abusive relationships. They come to me and they're grasping at straws. Is this neurodivergent? Is this autism? I help people come to that realization that maybe there's some neurodivergence there, but a lot of times it's not. This is not, neurodivergence is not toxic. It's not destructive. Absolutely. And obviously, since I don't have a diagnosis, I don't have anybody who can say this definitively about me. But because of the nature of my work, it's not very hard to look in the mirror and draw some conclusions about myself. I Mm -hmm. have an abusive and traumatic childhood. And some of the literature that's been really interesting to me over the last few years is about how trauma at a young age can create neurodivergent brains. I think about that and I wonder, for me, chicken or the egg, because I can think of things about me as a young child that I don't think have changed, that I say, maybe I was always that way, but there are other things that very clearly have developed as coping mechanisms for my early experiences that definitely changed my brain and the way it developed. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's having an awareness of that and understanding when some of those traits or some of those coping mechanisms pop up. It's, oh, okay. I had that little trigger of spiciness. We're understanding so much more about what happens to the brain with trauma. And we already knew that certain young children that had certain types of trauma, a lot of the focus went on adopted children that have come from other countries. We knew that they had reactive attachment type issues, which is that difficulty in connecting and bonding. What we started seeing is this overlap of behaviors and and processing and engaging between our autistic children and our reactive attachment. And so we started looking at that and going, wait, what does that mean? I've been studying positive psychology since before that term existed. That term came along later to codify uh, some of the areas that I was already looking into. And when I started doing that in the late 90s, it was for myself. I was doing it because I needed it. I knew or I had a sense that there was something I could be doing that would be beneficial. So I went on a search to discover that. It was very exciting to me when... I discovered, oh, now it is a field. Now there's, now I can actually go and study it. And I went to UPenn and got my specialization. And some of the work that I really love is is in that same world as what you're talking about. You know, what plays in my brain all the time is that we know that 50% of our well-being, our thermostat of where we're going to land in terms of our overall happiness and fulfillment in life is genetic. Only 10% is circumstantial. And then that other 40% is based on what we're choosing to do. We do know that we've got that predisposition. And then we've got we've got environmental. 10% is huge too, though. Because you look at yeah. the trauma, which is in that environmental 10%. Yeah. What it can do to really alter the brain. Yes. But then the good news in what you're saying is that we've got that 40%, which a lot of, a lot of people... When they're afraid of that neurodivergent label, they're right. afraid of being pigeonholed and locked in. I think it's so important for everybody to hear your message there that you've got a lot of influence 
you have an outrageous amount of control for your experience in the world. I am not a researcher. That's not my gift. My gift, I believe, is being a good communicator and teacher of these concepts. So I get really nerdy in some of the statistics that I think are really helpful for us to understand what's possible. For me, that 40% of what's in our control, I think most people would be happy if you said, hey, if you could take this pill, or if I could tell you to stand on one foot and hop three times, if there was like a prescription that mm -hmm. I could give you and yes. you could be 5% happier, would you do it? I don't know a single person who wouldn't be ecstatic at the prospects of mm -hmm. 5%. Right. 40% within our own control is really outrageous. And I think when you talk about you don't know how beneficial having diagnoses are for adults that might be not typical, not neurotypical, I tend to agree with you. There may be reasons it's useful if you're looking to get benefits or disability, of course, mm -hmm. go after that. But other than that, a lot of times when you get a diagnosis, what I see is that it's very easy to allow a diagnosis to feel like a weight around your neck, to mm -hmm. feel a victim of this diagnosis. So when you say 40%, that's a lot of empowerment. That's a lot of ability to create exactly what you want, no matter what's going on in your brain. I totally agree yeah. with you. And I think the most beneficial part is the framework itself. So like you said, it doesn't take much for you to recognize the traits. That's what's the most important, not the diagnostic uh, yeah. label. And exactly what you're saying, getting blocked into a label really facilitates that victim type mindset. I saw that as in my years as a therapist with mental health diagnoses. Yeah. It doesn't matter what that label is. You can be labeled an athlete. And, and you will live up to that. I saw people get locked into depression and anxiety yeah. and all sorts of other diagnoses too when that empowerment that you realize you do have the ability to change this versus I have anxiety. I have depression. It's mine. I'm stuck with it. I am neurodivergent. I have yeah. it because of, okay, what are you going to do with that? There's so yeah, you can do. Absolutely. And I love, to your point, when I'm working with individuals that are having that experience, I like to try to ask them to talk about what they're experiencing instead of what they mm -hmm. are. Right? Because if I can switch your conversation to, I'm experiencing anxiety or I'm experiencing some neurodivergent whatever mm -hmm. this moment. Now I've put just a little bit of space between myself and what this thing is. What I love about that is it allows me to have a definition of my identity and of myself that's separate. Yeah. That this thing, maybe it's something I will always experience, maybe not, but I've allowed for the possibility that this is just something that's going on with me right now. It may not always be. I use that word experiencing all the time. Experiencing and even perception when yeah. it comes to our own perception of ourselves and yes. our perception of others. There's so much that's subject to interpretation, even when you interpret yourself. Right. I have worked with 12, 13-year-olds all yeah. the way up to people in their 80s. And the changes that people go through, we change and evolve as human beings. Like right. you said, 
actually just said to a client today, I said, focus on today. Where are you and your husband today? Looking back to understand your past is important, but today, tomorrow, the next day, it changes. Life changes us. We change ourselves. So I remember sitting in lecture when I was getting my specialization and hearing this, and it really just changed everything that I think about who I am. And I think when you understand this, it's so useful for people who have maybe been in a pattern or who have been in experience, mm-hmm. they want to change it. And the idea is this, there was an experiment that was run and essentially what the researchers were trying to discover was what is the best predictor of future behavior? It sounds really simple, right? What most people believe is going to be the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, right? If you want to know if your husband is going to come home late for dinner again, what do he do the last 10 years of your marriage. That's what a lot of people think is, oh, he's always been late. He's always going to continue to be late. But what is so exhilarating to me is that actually it's a very bad predictor. And what's a great predictor is what people say is their stated plan. What do they plan that they're going to do? So if your husband says to you, I've always been late, but I've decided getting home in time for dinner is really important to me. I'm going to start coming home from dinner on time. That stated plan is so much more important than past behaviors. When we're looking to whatever struggles we're dealing with, whatever way that we find that, whether it's our brains, whether it's environment, whatever's going on, if we can come up with a stated plan that we really believe in, we -hmm. can really begin to change that dynamic. That doesn't surprise me. I'm not familiar with the exact research you're talking about, but It's not surprising because really changing our plan or whatever our plan is sets our expectation. Yeah. And expectations tend to be self-fulfilling prophecies, but that can also be to the negative as well. If someone expects, you know what, I just can't get it right. I'm just always late for dinner and I can't seem to figure out it. So that without the plan for change, we tend to believe in ourselves. There's two little words that I love when people are in that space of saying, this is my past behavior, or this is my past experience. This is what my past relationship's been like. And I want to be over here. I'm living in this gap between what I've been experiencing and what I want. I find that there are two very small words that are really useful in helping us create that plan so that we can get those results. The first word is yet. And the second word is and. I've not learned how to come home on time yet. Yet. I get to open myself up to the possibility. It's not that I can't do this. Mm -hmm. It's that I'm in the middle of the problem solving. That little word can really just, as we talk about, you can be closed into your own framework. Mm -hmm. That is a remarkable way to build in a door for yourself. The same thing with and, because a lot of people, as we're talking about, we can get caught in our own framework. So if what I'm believing about myself is I can't be in loud places, I have sensory processing disorder, Mm -hmm. I can't be in loud places. If you can use the word and so that you Mm -hmm. can decide I have sensory processing disorder and I'm going to find a way why mm-hmm. I haven't found it yet to be in these situations I want to yes. be. So I find, again, it's all about I can be more than one thing and I can yes. separate this part of what's going on with me from being 
everything that's going on with me. I can also build in the possibility to help me create the plan so that I can get from these past experiences to where I'm hoping to grow. I have sensory processing disorder and I know that there are things I can do to help me go to the concert. I just don't know what they are yet. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Those two little words, if you can find a way to use them with yourself when you're in that space of saying, this is really hard for me, or I don't know how to do this, or I'm never going to be able to have a relationship that I want, like X, Y, and Z, entering in, well, I haven't figured out how to have this kind of relationship yet. Okay, so I'm going to take your two words and then raise you my two words. Love it. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. So we've got two words that you're encouraging people to include. I've got two words that I'm encouraging people to exclude, to remove. So my two words are never and should. Oh, yes. Should is a big one on my list as well. When I Mm -hmm. hear should, what I hear is other people's expectations for me. Yes, because that should came from somewhere. People oftentimes have been so indoctrinated by others. Whoever those others may be, the should was given to them. Some people think, it's my own should. It's my own belief. I'm like, kind of a guilty, shamey word. So where's that coming from? I tell people shoulds are not okay. Never eliminates the possibility of, you're taking all your options away. Completely agree. Yeah. Okay. So we got four words. I love it. There's some specific tools and strategies for you. So most of the people listening to this podcast are, I would say my demographic is probably 30s and up, and most people are mixed neurotype couples of some kind. But I've also got people who are listening who are parents of neurodivergent individuals. Yeah. So it's a mix. I'd love to hear more about you since you are self-identified as neurodivergent. Tell me, what can you share with people? In what way do you see that as influencing your relationships with other people, friendships, dating relationships with your parents, with the siblings, whatever, all of them? It's every way, truly every way. It really is a part of all of my relationships in one way or another. Uh, It is somebody who identifies that way. The sensory processing issues are very easy to point out. I essentially have sensory issues with everything except taste. Wow. Okay. Whether I am wearing special earplugs so that I can manage the loudness Mm -hmm. of sounds, which I do when I'm having a difficult time, Mm -hmm. or whether we're talking about clothing Mm -hmm. and where or how clothing touches me. My poor family trying to buy me presents. Somebody just wants to get you a nice shirt. I won't do it. I told my daughter I'm not buying you clothes. Yeah, it's the wrong thickness. It's the wrong cut. I can feel seams, even Mm -hmm. if it's, there's another shirt. I have a lot of sensory processing issues. And I think as a younger person, so I'm 44 now, I've grown five businesses. I'm in a different place. I've been able to make my own environment that works for me. Mm -hmm. But as a young person, I couldn't do that. I can tell you that in the early 2000s, when I was still working in offices where open office design was mm-hmm. king, it was outrageously challenging for me. Yes. It was seen, I believe, to be standoffish or not wanting to be a part of the team. But the reality mm-hmm. was I needed to be in a quiet 
space without a lot of peripheral stuff going on. I couldn't be at a desk with lots of people walking by all the time. Mm -hmm. and it was very distracting and very stressful for me. In relationships, I think definitely there are things in my relationship style and how I relate to other people that I think are very influenced by that. I believe like a lot of neurodivergent people that I know get ourselves into situations where we give way too much to other people. We don't do a good enough job of vetting mm -hmm. who deserves our attention, our affection, our loyalties. What do you attribute that to specifically? I believe that because I struggled to relate as a young person in a typical way, that whenever I would feel connected to somebody, it's two things. If I felt connected to somebody, I would make whatever bridge was necessary in mm -hmm. order to be in their life because I was so happy to feel that connection with others. I think the other part of it is that in the way that diverse people can really enjoy getting deeply into whatever is our interest, we can develop that for other people. So, so that know, other people become a special interest. All right. Yeah. yeah. I, I could give you a million examples, but I can give you one example where there was a, a friendly person that I had not known for a very long period of time. And we'd met through a networking group for women with businesses over a million dollars. So I felt like we already had a lot in common. And her parent was diagnosed with cancer. For me, I felt like she was in my life at this particular time. I understood the experience of how lonely and isolating that can feel. And so it didn't seem like a lot to me that I reached out to her every single day from the moment of diagnosis until her mother passed. And it wasn't a big deal. I would send her a meme. I would send her a text. I would say, you don't have to respond. I just want you to know that somebody is thinking about you and I'm here. She was so thankful for that. Mm -hmm. And yet, a few months later, when someone in my immediate family was diagnosed with cancer, I got a bouquet of flowers and then she disappeared and I never heard from her again. And it was incredibly painful to me. Mm -hmm. Looking back at that, what I did for her was lovely. I didn't really engage in the relationship in a way of building this reciprocal experience. So it was a one-way thing. Yeah. And believing, as I think neurodiverse people can, that when you give loyalty, affection, attention, care, that it will be reciprocated. And that's just not always the case. And not because other people are there to take advantage of you. Sometimes they just got their own stuff going on. They didn't need another person or whatever in their life. They were thankful that you were lovely for them, but that wasn't a part of where they were at in their lives. I'm so glad you shared that example. What comes to mind is this analogy that I use of tennis volleys, because I used to play tennis back when I was an athlete. <laughs> so I played tennis and conversations and interactions to me, see them like that tennis volley where you're hitting the ball back and forth. Now in a tennis match, you're trying to put the ball, but in the beginning you get out there, you're warming up and so you're hitting it back and forth. Your goal is to hit it to the person on the other side, then to hit it back to you. What I see happening in a lot of 
conversations and interactions is that somebody's hitting the ball and the receiver is seeing it go by and acknowledges yeah. it, but doesn't hit it back. What you're saying, what it sounds like to me is that what you're wanting to look for is that you actually are volleying. That Absolutely. one person not just hitting the ball. And although the person on the other side may see it and may see it go by, if they're not hitting it back, and I tell a lot of my neurodivergent folks, when your partner's hitting you a ball, it's your turn to hit it back. Right. They're waiting for you to hit it right. back. So sometimes the neurotypical will hit it again and hit it again. Right. But what you do, that's a great example, though, for the neurodivergent folks out there to look for in interactions. Is this person hitting that ball Right. Are they reciprocating? Right. And are they reciprocating at a similar level? I think one of the things that, because I don't work so much with romantic relationships. That's not really a part of my practice so much. So I really talk more just about all relationships, mainly uh, friend relationships or workplace relationships. But one of the things that I see um, is that... As you can see, my chat with Christy was full of so many nuggets and it went on and on and on. So I've decided to make it into a two-part podcast. Be sure and tune in in two weeks to hear part two, but I am about to drop the trailer for you to get a little sneak peek. There is a difference between pain and suffering. And in our culture, we don't always make a distinction between mm -hmm. the two. I've had clients say to me, what if I'm not interested in any yeah. of that? And I'm like, it doesn't matter because it's if not about you. Sometimes you need to eat the extra piece of cake and sometimes you need to not go to work and just stay in bed. And sometimes you need to go to a parking lot and scream in your car. And it's important to know that when you are asking something of your partner to really know what you want, it goes back to yeah. what do you really want from your partner? Thank you so much to all of my guests of season three of the Your Neurodiverse Relationship podcast. These folks are bringing their lives to you to help all of you out there who are trying to figure out your own relationships. If you'd ever be interested in being on a podcast, just email us at gethelp@jodycarlton.com. Also, be sure to visit me online at jodycarlton.com to see all the resources that I have available to you. Until next time.